So, we shift gears, um, and today we, we hit week three of our series. This is the official, uh, when we're done today, we'll be halfway through our series on Ridiculous Faith. As a reminder, Revolution Church is going through this same series as we um, are preparing for um, our, our merger affirmation things. And as a reminder, next week is the pastor swap. So um, I would encourage as many of you as possible to be here and uh, hopefully the weather will cooperate with us. And we want to encourage um, our regular folks who can't be here to show up. So if you see them this week, you can kind of um, poke at them and tell them to make sure they show up next week because they're going to get the opportunity to hear from Pastor David as he brings a message. And you're going to hear from his heart. Okay, you're going to hear um, more about him and, uh, and his story and meet his family. Um, and, and he's going to open up Daniel 5 to us. Okay? Um, and then after the service, the kitchen team is, is preparing um, to host a potluck. So there will be a main dish available and drinks available. But if you bring a side and a dessert to share, um, then that'll, that'll be your contribution. And we will, well, you all, I'll be at Revolution doing the same thing. But you will all eat together. Um, and you will get a chance to hear more specifically from Pastor David uh, about his heart, his call to ministry, how he sees the mission of the church, and you'll have an opportunity to ask whatever questions uh, of him you may want to ask. And so would really encourage you to, to make time to, to be here next week and to stay for the luncheon afterwards. I think you'll be blessed, and that'll help answer a lot of your questions leading into the merger vote, which will be on um, March 3rd as we, as we look for affirmation of that. But Revolution is going through the same series. We're dealing with chapter 3 today, um, and in chapter 3, we're dealing with a faith that's to die for. If you lived in my house, you would often hear the expression, it's to die for. And usually when you hear the expression, it's to die for, Carrie is talking about something delicious that she just ate. And I will oftentimes try it. Usually not, because usually it's gross. But I sometimes will try it. I shouldn't say oftentimes. Don't lie at church, Matt. I will sometimes try it. And, and, and occasionally she's right. It's good. But she's never right in that I would never die for it. Like, I mean, there are very few things that I would actively choose to die for. And of course, she doesn't actually mean that it's to die for. What she means is, is that it's really good and that I should make sure I don't miss out on the experience of having some. And that's, that's kind of what she means. And some of you might have heard that expression in different ways. Teenagers use it a lot, right? Teenage girls use it an awful lot, right? Clothes, boys, music, it doesn't matter. Things that are to die for. What they really mean is you should experience this. What it really means is it's worth your life to try it just once. And the reality is there's not a lot that really in this world is to die for. Husbands, fathers, I have no doubt that you would die for your children, that you would die for your spouse. Wives and moms, you, you, you probably could say the same thing. We might, we might die even to save a stranger. But where we struggle where we struggle is the idea that we have a faith that's to die for. And the reason we struggle with the idea that we have a faith that's to die for is because oftentimes, especially in this part of the world, in this culture, we've never been forced to consider something so rash. 
we've never been forced to consider whether or not living a life of Christian faith is something that we would do if the risk was to our lives. Now, there are parts in the world, there are a grand majority of parts in the world where that is the reality for every Christian that chooses to show up at a house church, for every Christian that has to secretly attend a prayer meeting. There are parts in the world where every Christian that chooses to publicly be baptized to say, I am with Jesus Christ. He is the Lord and Savior of my life, and I am going to follow him for everything I have. There are parts of the world where he has or she have just separated themselves from their family and put themselves in the line of fire, and they know it, and they do it anyway. In those parts of the world, if we talked about having a faith that was to die for, there would be no question what we were talking about. But, but here in this part of the world, in this culture, it, it gets tricky. We have a hard time understanding things like this. Luke 9.23, this is Jesus talking to his followers, and he's actually trying to, to send them away. See, Jesus at this point has gathered this large number of followers because he is in right now. He's what's in season. He's He's pretty cool. He's the newest thing. And everybody says, man, that guy can do miracles. If you are hurt or sick or have a disease, you go to him and he will touch you and he will heal you and he's going to do miracles. And oh, by the way, have you seen what he does with just a couple of loaves of bread and a couple of fish? Man, he can feed multitudes. This guy is awesome. And so everybody is following around Jesus, probably because they want to be able to say, I saw that guy. Remember when that I saw him, right? Listen, when I, um, when I was a teenager, as a big Bulls fan, and, uh, you know, we went to a couple of Bulls games every year. It was, it was a pretty regular thing. My dad took us to a couple of games every year. But it was also a regular thing that my dad could not help himself from talking to everybody that we were in line around, that we sat around, that we parked next to. Like, he just couldn't stop himself. And I know it was endearing, Maybe, but it was also embarrassing when you're 15. You're like, Dad, they don't care. And he always had a standard line, because when, when he, he would always ask people where they were from, and they'd tell him where they were from, and then obligatory, they would say, well, where are you from? And, and he would always say, well, we're from the Quad Cities, riverboat gambling capital of the world. Like that was somehow, that was the Quad Cities' claim to fame, because apparently we were the first to have that. But, but this is, that's always how the conversation would get, and always it would come around to asking, well, why are you here? And, and on more than one occasion, each time that we were there, we heard from somebody who, this was their first game. This was the only game they planned to attend. They came to this game. Why? Because they wanted to be able to tell their kids, and they wanted their kids to be able to tell their grandkids, hey, you know what? I saw Michael Jordan play once. I saw Michael Jordan play once. And if you didn't see that, man, I'm sorry. That's, that stinks for you because I saw Michael Jordan play and I saw, I really feel bad for those people in Washington who had to see him play for the Wizards. I saw Michael Jordan play when that meant something, <laughs> when it was good. But that's, that's what this is. That's what this is. There are crowds of people following Jesus and, and they're following Jesus because they want to be able to say, man, I saw that guy. I gave it a shot. I saw that guy, right? He was the in thing. He was hot. He was healing everybody. It was great. And I saw him. And Jesus knows that's why they're following him. He knows their hearts aren't really with them. And so on multiple occasions in the Gospels, he stops and he says, hey, hey, time out. It's time for you to take stock of where you're at and what you're doing. It's time for you to really think about this. And on this occasion, here's what he says. He says, hey, if you really want to be my follower, 
If you really want to follow me, then, then here's what you have to be willing to do, right? Here's what you have to do. You give up your own way. You give up your own life. You stop thinking that your wants and needs and your life matter one little bit because, listen to me, if you want to follow me, they don't. Oh, and that stings. That's not the Jesus we know, right? That's not the Jesus we've been taught. Is the fact that if I want to follow Jesus, what I want doesn't matter anymore. What I want is now completely secondary to what's supposed to matter. But this is what Jesus says. If any of you want to be my follower, give up your own way. Your needs don't matter anymore. You give up your own way. You take up your cross daily, right? We talk about a cross to bear like it's this hard thing I have to put up with. Jesus talked about a cross to bear like it was this big thing that you carry to the place where they were going to execute you because that's what it was and that's what it was for him, what it would be for him shortly after he said this. Nobody was confused about this. He basically is saying, look, if you want to be my follower, give up your own way. Pick up your cross. Die every day to follow me. Put your own thoughts, your own wants, your own needs, your own stuff. Put it to death because it doesn't matter anymore. Because if you're going to follow me, guess what? There's one thing that matters. I matter. Nothing else matters as much as me. And then, and then we get this, this thing where we're like, wow. Why would anybody follow him? If, if somebody came up to you and said, I want to be your best friend, but just know, right, that if you choose to be my best friend, that what you want doesn't matter anymore, right? We're never going to go to the movie you pick, right? We're never going to go to the restaurant you choose, right? We're never going to go hang out and do the things you want to do. It's all about me. How many of you are like, yes, I want to be best friends with that guy? No, of course not, right? But this is such a hard sell. I mean, of course, this isn't just a random guy coming up to you. This is the God of the universe saying, hey, 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 I know everything there is to know, and I have the life that you have been waiting for. I have the adventure that your heart has been screaming for. Everything that you were created for, everything is found here in following me. You all of a sudden will be more fulfilled than you've ever been in the past. Sex drugs, affairs, stuff, retirement funds, all of these things that you try to collect, all of this stuff that you try to do because that's going to make your heart happy. Forget it. That's not what it is. You follow me because I have created you so that when you follow me, everything makes sense and everything is right, but you have to give up everything that you thought you wanted and needed. You've got to die to yourself every single day. Basically, what he's saying is you have to have a ridiculous faith that is to die for. And, and guys, the rub is that, that God spends most of his, no, I'm sorry, not his life, eternal, I get it. God spends most of our lives trying to convince us that that's true. God spends most of our lives trying to convince us that what we thought we wanted and that what we think will fulfill us, and that what we think will satisfy, and that what we think will make us happy, and that what we think will fix everything, what we think will give our lives value and worthwhile, and, and will make them full of meaning. He spends most of our lives trying to convince us that the thing that we really need to do is give that stuff up and put him first. And he gives us tests of faith. He gives us tests of faith to grow us. And we pass the test by trusting him to do more in and through us than we ever thought was possible. 
And that's what we're going to see today with Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego as we get to Daniel 3, is that he asks them to put their faith in such strong, uh, to, to, to make it so strong, to put it on the line to the point where if he doesn't show up, they're dead. And they know it. And so he gives them this test of faith, and they pass by saying, okay, God, Whatever you want us to do, we'll do, and we'll trust you to show up and do impossible in and through us. And we don't know much about Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. They are not the main characters in the book of Daniel, um, but uh, we know a little bit about them. We know that uh, when, when Nebuchadnezzar came and conquered Israel and sacked Jerusalem and raised the temple to the ground, that he took captives among them, not just them, but among them were four individuals, Daniel and Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, and that's their, their Babylonian names. And, um, and we know that they're tight with Daniel, right? They basically live with Daniel. They're all close together. At least they did at the beginning. Um, they were trained in Nebuchadnezzar's training program together. So they've had the test of the food, right? Uh, the king wanted them, we, we heard week one, the king wanted them to eat food and drink wine that had been sacrificed to gods that was ceremonially unclean. Basically, um, all you need to know about that is that by eating the food and drinking the wine, what they would have been doing is they would have been dishonoring their God to honor Nebuchadnezzar's gods. And they said, no, we're not doing it. Their lives were on the line. But they trusted, they asked God, God showed up, and they were able to pass that test. And then next week, last week, we saw in, in, in Daniel 2, we saw... This, this tragic thing happened where Nebuchadnezzar had a dream. He was given this vision by God. He flipped out. He wanted an answer to the dream. He wanted it immediately. Nobody could answer the dream. And so he ordered every wise man, magician, astrologer, Daniel and his friends were wise men lumped in there. He ordered them all executed. But they said, okay, we can answer the dream. Daniel said, I can do this right? He says, in faith, I can tell you the dream and I can interpret the dream because God is going to work in and through me. And then he says to his three friends, hey guys, pray with me because we need God to show up or we're done for. And God shows up. And then because of that, they're all elevated and Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, basically guys that have been accountability partners with Daniel, right? They're in a small group with Daniel, right? Choose your small groups wisely. They chose one with Daniel and it worked out well. Right? So they're in a small group with Daniel, and, and they're then elevated to the heads. The three of them make up the rulers next to the king, next to Daniel. They are the rulers of the province of Babylon. So that's where we get to today. And we're going to dig in on them today, and we're going to see how their faith is absolutely to die for. So we're going to jump in uh, to Daniel 3. Okay. Um, I'm gonna, it's 30 verses long. You're not going to get all of them on the screen. I'm going to share most of them with you as we go, but you can feel free to, to read along uh, in your Bible or uh, one that's under the chair in front of you. If not, read this on your own to prepare okay, uh, and, and see what we're talking about as we go. King Nebuchadnezzar made a gold statue 90 feet tall and 9 feet wide. By the way, that's big, right? 90 feet tall, okay? 9 stories tall, 9 feet wide, okay? Um, and set it up on the plain of Dura in the province of Babylon. Then he sent messengers, messages to the high office, 
officers, officials, governors, advisors, treasurers, judges, magistrates, and all of the provincial officials to come to the, get, to the dedication of the statue that he had set up. Those are a lot of words that I just tried to read. Hopefully you followed along, right? Um, then a herald shouted, people of all races and nations and languages, listen to the king's command. When you hear the sound of the musical instruments, bow to the ground to worship the king or King Nebuchadnezzar's gold statue. See, I made a mistake there as I was reading it, something that's often when we read this. A lot of people think that Nebuchadnezzar made a statue of himself, tried to elevate himself to God and made a statue of himself and said, hey, everybody bow down and worship me. It's not what Nebuchadnezzar did. That's not what we read in scripture. You're not going to read that in any version of any scripture, okay? Um, but he does create this 90 foot tall, nine feet wide gold statue. He sets it up and he says, hey, everybody, magistrates, officials, officers, you name it, everybody. Now he says, everybody, people of all races and nations and languages, I don't care who you are or how you got here. And remember, a lot of these people are conquered people. This is, this is Babylon's MO, right? Like they'll conquer a land and then they take the best of you back here, right? And they try to integrate you into their way of life. This is part of that process. This is the integration process that Nebuchadnezzar is doing to make everybody united. He's brought in all of these different races and all of these different religions and all of these different um, people groups, and he's brought them all together. And now his job, this is actually really wise. It's ungodly, but it's wise. He's brought them all together and he said, okay, so now I've got a nation full of different kinds of people. How do I bring them all together under one banner? And he says, okay, well, here's what we're going to do. I'm going to set up the statue. When you hear the musical instrument, you're going to bow down and you're going to worship my God. And as a bonus, if you don't, I'm going to have you immediately thrown into a blazing furnace. So what this is, is this is Nebuchadnezzar, okay? This is Nebuchadnezzar um, telling people, hey, you don't have to stop worshiping your God. You don't have to stop worshiping your gods. You don't have to give up your faith. You don't have to give up your religion, you don't have to stop doing the things that make you who you are. You don't have to stop doing any of that stuff. The only thing I need you to do is when you hear the music, look at the statue, hit the dirt, worship my God. You can keep your God. Your God is fine. This God, though, trumps you can keep going to your temple. You can keep sacrificing to your God. You can keep doing whatever your God requires. But when you're told to, you will worship my God above all. And so this is Nebuchadnezzar's plan. It's his plan to unite all of the people under one religion. Not that you have to give up your religion. See, and this would have been easy for most people to do because most people collected God's. That's what most of the nations at that time did. They collected small g gods, right? It's the, it, it, think of it, in, it's easier for us to think of it if we think about Roman gods, like gods and goddesses, like mythology, like Zeus and Hermes and um, Aphrodite and Hades and all of these other people. And, and so we, we think about them, but, but that's what they did. They collected these small g gods that they worshiped. They didn't think that other nations didn't have their own small g gods. And what happened is when they went to war, what they thought is their small g gods were fighting each other. 
to see which one was going to be better, right? That's why oftentimes you would see people that were wildly outnumbered think we can take them, right? It wasn't because they couldn't count. It was because they thought their small g God was better, right? And what happens is then oftentimes the, 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 the nation that won their small g God, their, their God, their idol, they would say, well, that, that God is the most powerful one. Well, this is a no-brainer for a lot of people, right? Because, because Babylon is the world power, and Nebuchadnezzar isn't saying, abandon your little gods. What he's saying is, though, what you need to do is honor my God as most important above all. And so when the music plays, if you don't want to be thrown in the furnace, guess what? Hit the ground. Get your knees on the dirt, put your face in the dirt, and you worship the God that I set up through the statue that I set up, and that's just the way that it's going to be. And get, it worked, man. So at the sound of the musical instruments, all of the people, whatever their race, nation, or language, which means whatever their gods, whatever their religion that they followed, they bowed down to the ground and worshiped the gold statue that King Nebuchadnezzar had set up. And in that way, they were safe. And guys, I'm not going to lie to you. That is an awful lot about what our culture is like right now. Right? You are going to be hard-pressed to find somebody that tells you honestly that tells you, you should stop being Christian. We don't deal with that level of persecution, right? Other parts of the world say, denounce Jesus Christ or I will kill you, right? That's not here in this part of the world. We don't deal with that. But what we do deal with is people saying, you're fine, believe in Jesus. Believe in Yahweh, the one true God of the universe. Believe it, go for it. Just add these other things to it. Or keep it to yourself. Right? Just allow for these other things. Or don't say anything at all. Right? Because there is so much truth out there. And we are so small. How can we ever possibly hope to know all of the truth? And if we can't know all of the truth, then how can we say that we're right? And... and they'll ask you these questions like, where has extremism, when you're an extremist, where has that ever been good in history? Where has somebody being extreme ever been good for the world? And they'll point to things like the Crusades or the Holocaust or suicide bombers, 9-11. And they'll say, see, extremism doesn't work Believe what you want to believe, but don't let it get out there in the public square. In fact, they tell us this. They tell us, just coexist. It'll be fine. Just coexist. Work it all together. It's no big deal. Believe what you want to believe. Let other people believe what they want to believe. Just keep your mouth shut when yours contradicts theirs. And if they keep their mouth shut where theirs contradicts yours, then guess what? Everybody's happy. That's what Nebuchadnezzar was saying. Follow mine. Keep yours, but follow mine too. And in doing so, boy, if Satan can get them to do that, if Satan can get us to do that, in doing so, we completely abandon our faith. Because these things don't coexist. It's a nice idea, right? But they are completely conflicting ideologies. Here's what they are, right? The crescent moon on the sea there and the star, that, that is the symbol for Islam. That's, that's what that is. That's the Islamic symbol, right? The O, um, right? 
That, that peace sign, you probably didn't know this. It's okay if you didn't. I'm not mad at you if you've got peace sign earrings or you've got a shirt that has a peace sign. We have several at our house. Nobody's mad at you because culturally that's not what it means for us, but you know what that really means. That's the, uh, it, it's a pagan symbol. It's an upside-down cross. Um, it's a pagan symbol. That's what it always was originally intended to mean. It's been co-opted in our culture for something else. Again, I'm not mad at a peace sign, right? But, but that's what it means. The E... Uh, the symbol for male and female scientific equation. Uh, the X is that star of David, Judaism. Uh, the I, it's the wand and the pentagram of Wiccan. Another word for Wiccan is Satanism. The S, the yin and the yang. Um, Eastern, oh man, too far. Eastern uh, philosophy. And the cross, of course, the T is the cross of Christ. And so what we're told is, well, just bring them all together, right? Because if you bring them all together, then it's all good, right? Everybody's happy. Nobody has to feel left out. Nobody has to be told that they're wrong. Everybody can just believe what they want to believe. And if that's true, then what we're saying is Jesus in the Bible lies when he says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. Nobody gets to the Father except through me, right? We were talking about finding Nemo last night because Travis said fish don't have feelings. And he's probably right. We were reminiscing about a small group we had last summer. Tracy Davis uh, led us in a small group, Chad Kristoff, where uh, fathers and sons went and did things. And uh, Aubrey was actually a little bummed out that the women haven't done one of these yet. So ladies, if somebody wants to lead that small group for moms and daughters... You got a couple people that would sign up for sure. But one of the things that we went fishing, and Travis had never been fishing before because his dad doesn't like to do it, and he's not good at it. Um, so he went twice as a kid. He fell in both times. And so he just quit doing it, right? Safe, better safe than sorry. And so we went fishing, and Travis is, is trying to learn how to fish. And I can't remember if it was Tanner or Logan or Tracy or somebody, um, Shane, somebody, um, you know, told him, as soon as you feel a tug on the line, you got to set the hook. Well, what does that mean? So they, they, they put it in terms we could understand. Well, as soon as you feel a tug on the line, you got to yank on it. Travis felt a tug on the line, and he yanked that thing so hard. The fish came out of the water probably 10 feet in the air and slammed it on the ground. And we were catching them and throwing them back, but there was not throwing that one back. That one was not going to make it. Um, and uh, we were having this discussion. Fish don't have feelings. We said, well, we've got to watch Finding Nemo because we've got to feel better about it. But you know, in Finding Nemo, the whole plan is to escape because all drains lead to the ocean. It was a long way to get to this point, right? <laughs> that when you watch Finding Nemo, they say all drains lead to the ocean. So that's how they're going to escape. They just got to get to a drain. Sink, toilet, doesn't matter. They get to a drain. The idea is eventually they'll get to the ocean. They'll get where they've longed to be. They'll get where home is. See, that's what coexist says. That's what Nebuchadnezzar was saying. That's what our culture says. It doesn't matter what you believe as long as you're sincere. You are going to eventually get there because all drains lead to the ocean. The problem is we know that's not true. The Bible, if it's right, clearly says that's not true. And so we can't pretend that it is. Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego can't pretend that it's okay to bow down and worship this statue. It doesn't work that way. In fact, uh, what we're told in Scripture is simply this. Proverbs 9.10 says, The fear of the Lord is the foundation of wisdom. Right? So we refuse to bend. 
We refuse to compromise. And yes, we know it's scary out there. Yes, we know that there is a world that tells us to compromise and it's better for everybody if we do. Other parts of the world, they tell you to compromise or they will kill you. But fear of the Lord is the foundation of wisdom and there is no need to compromise. Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego don't. So here's what happens, right? Um, beginning in, in uh, Daniel 8, 3, 8, Here's what it says. I've got verse 12 up there for you, but I'll read you the rest. Uh, but some of the astrologers went to the king and informed on the Jews. This, they said to King Nebuchadnezzar, long live the king. You issued a decree requiring all the people to bow down and worship the gold statue when they heard the sound of the horn, flute, zither, lyre, harp, pipes, and other musical instruments. That decree also says that those who refuse to obey must be thrown into the blazing furnace. But there are some Jews... Now, right away, that should tell you, there are other Jews. And guess what the other Jews chose to do? They chose to hit the ground. They heard the sound. They got on their knees. They compromised. These were probably the other Jews that, guess what? They also ate the meat and drank the wine that had been dedicated to the false gods. They cowered in fear when the issue was given to kill all of the wise men because they don't have a faith that's to die for. But there are some Jews, Shadrach, Meshach, Abednego, whom you have put in charge of the province of Babylon, and they pay no attention to you, your majesty. They refuse to serve your gods, and they do not worship the gold statue that you have set up. Nebuchadnezzar throws a fit. He flew into a rage. By the way, we, we learned last week, this guy has a temper issue, right? He's a little bit unstable, right? Just he had the bad dream and he decided to kill everybody because of it. Um, in this instance, he flies into a rage and he says, I will give you one more chance to bow down and worship the statue I've made when you hear the sound of the musical instruments. By the way, you know why they're getting one more chance? You know why they're getting one more chance? They're getting one more chance because they've shown that they're valuable. Remember, we read in chapter one that whenever Nebuchadnezzar uh, consulted these three, he found them to be 10 times wiser than the people that are telling on them. They were 10 times more useful. They were 10 times wiser than the people that are telling on them. That's why they're telling they're jealous. These outsiders, these foreigners, these Jews have been elevated to the status of they, they are in charge of the province of Babylon and these other people are jealous of it. Right, And so as soon as they get their chance, as soon as they see their window, they tell on them, trying to get them thrown um, into the furnace, trying to get them executed. But Nebuchadnezzar knows how valuable they are. They know that you've got these guys here who are tattling, and technically they're right, but boy, they're not the most helpful. These guys here who have painted me in an awful corner, right? Because I'm supposed to throw them in the furnace, right? But I don't want to throw them in the furnace because they're 10 times better than these people. And so what he says is, even though he has already decreed immediately, on the spot, you'll be thrown in the furnace, he says, okay, wait, time out, right? I need you guys. I'm going to give you one more chance, right? I'm going to give you one more chance to do what I said, but if you refuse, you'll be thrown immediately into the blazing furnace, and then what God will be able to rescue you from my power? And here we get to the heart of the issue. Nebuchadnezzar says, I am all-powerful, what God do you serve that you think is going to be able to save you from me? 
But what you have to love here is that Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego are not giving in. I want you to understand what they're doing. They are digging in. They're not giving in. There are two kinds of faith in this world, and most of us try to live in the in-between. But when you try to live in the in-between, really it doesn't work. There are two kinds of faith. There is ridiculous faith that understands that God is life. When you have ridiculous faith, you understand that God is life. And so you can naturally trust him with your life. You know that your life was given by God. It was ordained by God. And everything in it happens because of and through God. You are where you are because God put you there. You are who you are because God made you to be that. And so therefore you can naturally trust him. It's this kind of faith that Paul talks about in Philippians 1. Where he says, hey man, I get this. To live is Christ, to die is gain. I can't go wrong. If you throw me in a fiery furnace, then guess what? Good news, I'm going to go be with my God, who I have been obedient to, and I have followed, and I am in good shape. And if I'm spared from the fiery furnace, then guess what? I will get to keep doing his will on earth. Remember last week we told you this. A Christian that is in the will of God is immortal. You are untouchable until God decides that he is done with you. And when God is done with you, that means he is calling you home. And when he calls you home, I got news for you, man. You are far better off than you were when you were here. We just don't understand the way that happens. We don't think that way, but that is exactly what is true. Shadrach, Meshach, Abednego, they get it, right? They know that God is life, and so they can trust God with their life completely. But what we try to do a lot of times is we try to live this life of self-faith. We wouldn't admit it, but this is how it plays out in the real world. We try to live a life of stealth faith. So, right? so I live the Christian life because of what I get out of it. The blessings, what God does for me. He makes my life easier, right? And he does things for me, and so I follow God. I have faith because he does things for me. And God does bless us, and God does things for us, and that's great. But in isolation... That's the wrong way to be because when that's why you have faith, when you have faith because God makes my life easier because I have faith, then guess what? When push comes to shove, you will never pass the test. You will shrink away and your faith will turn stealth. All of a sudden, you will not be living a life of ridiculous faith that's to die for. You will be living a life of invisible faith, secret faith that nobody knows about. There were plenty of Jews who right now bowed to the statue and they were thinking, you know what? I'm just, I'm more useful to God if I just am alive to do the things that God wants me to do. So they lived a life of secret stealth faith. I'm just gonna go along to get along. I'm gonna compromise a little bit here and it'll be okay. But Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego say, absolutely not. They are not gonna give in. See, what happens this, when, when you make it all about you and you focus on what God can do for you, then if that's me, then I'm always going to go stealth when the heat turns up. I mean, that's the truth. The heat and your faith, whether it's happened to you before or not, if you are a brand new Christian, then this may not have happened to you. If you have been a Christian for a while, then maybe you've experienced this, but Satan will at some point in time, brothers, sisters, he, he, will, he will attack you. 
and he will turn up the heat on your faith. And your life will feel like it's falling apart. And things that you thought made sense will no longer make sense. You will start to question everything that you thought you knew. You will start to question the goodness of God. You will start to question whether or not he is really in control. You will start to question whether or not he really has your best interest in mind. You will start to question whether or not he is really the sovereign God of everything. You'll start to question if he's real. You'll start to question even if he is real. Could he possibly forgive you for the things that you've done? You'll start to question if he is real, is he really good? Because would he really put me in this situation if he was good? You'll start to wonder all of those things. And what happens is as, you're, as, as the temperature gets turned up, the heat gets turned up on your faith. If the whole rootedness of your faith is what's God going to do for me? Then you're going to go stealth. And you're going you're gonna, to, in the moment, you're going to walk away and you're going to say, I still believe in God, but I, I'm not up for that kind of pressure. And you do stupid and you walk away, and you get stuck, but you certainly don't show up. See, but what's happened to Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, they've put themselves in a position where, and you got to love this, listen to this, you got to get this, right? Because they know God is real, and because of what they're about to do, basically what they're going to say to Nebuchadnezzar is God's real, and he's going to use us to prove it. But we have to decide, are, are we going to go stealth, or are we going to be firm with ridiculous faith, right? Um, but here, here's how it goes. Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego replied, Oh, Nebuchadnezzar, we don't need to defend ourselves before. You remember how it ended. He's like, what God is going to save you from me? And, and this is their answer. And, and, and we don't have to defend ourselves to you. Like, I don't have to answer that. What God is going to defend me from you? Have you not met Yahweh yet? Have you not had some interaction? He is the God that made us healthy and strong, even though we drank water and ate vegetables instead of the food from your table. He is the God who told Daniel what your dream was and what it meant. He's the God that took four slaves and elevated them to the highest positions in the land next to you. What do you mean what God is able to save us from you? We don't have to defend ourselves to you. If you throw us into the blazing fire, the God who we serve is able to save us. He will rescue us from your power, your majesty. Right? Like they're not being they're not being sarcastic. They're just telling it like it is. You are king. That's true. You can have us thrown in the furnace. That's true. You are the king. But our God will save us. And I love what's happening here is that they are basically saying our God is powerful. Our God is real. Our God is sure. And he's going to use us to prove it. Now, I don't think they know exactly what's going to happen next. But... I don't read any hedging of bets in there. We, he will rescue us from your power. And then he keeps going. And some people say, well, this is them hedging their bets. This isn't them hedging their bets. But even if he doesn't, we want to make it clear to you, your majesty, that we will never serve your gods or worship the gold statue you've set up. So a lot of people will look at that and they'll say, well, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, they weren't sure that God was going to save them. They hoped God would save them but they weren't sure. No, no, that's not what that says. And they're not treating God like a magic genie here or anything, but what they're saying is God will save us, period. Oh, and by the way, 
We find it so detestable to follow your God instead of our God that even if we were sure he wasn't going to save us, we would choose fiery furnace over bowing down to a fake God. Because our faith is to die for. And we know it, and it's ridiculous, and it's real, and so they've put themselves in this situation, and of course you know that it doesn't end well for them. Well, actually it ends great for them, but this part doesn't end well for them or the people that are guarding them. Uh, Nebuchadnezzar was so furious that his face became distorted with rage. He commanded that the furnace be heated seven times hotter than usual. Then he ordered some of the strongest men of his army to bind Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego and throw them into the blazing furnace. By the way, bind them is not like tie their hands together. This is like hog tie them, right? That's what this means to bind them. So hands, legs behind, like, like they are like literally incapacitated, um, and they are then thrown into the furnace. And if you keep reading, uh, so the, the, the furnace is so hot by now that the men who were charged to throw them in, that because of the smoke inhalation that, that they, and the heat, they actually died, right, just getting that close. But suddenly, turns out that uh, uh, it's not going to end the way that Nebuchadnezzar thought it was going to end. Um, but suddenly... Nebuchadnezzar jumped up in amazement and said, hey, didn't we tie up three men? Right? And if we tied up three men and threw them in, then why are there four just walking around like nothing happened? And, and, and this is that thing that happens where all of a sudden they said it would happen. They said, hey, our God will save us. And now Nebuchadnezzar is witnessing God saving them. Now, here's the deal. Did it have to be this way? No. Could God have caused Nebuchadnezzar to change his mind at the last minute? Sure. Do you suppose that's what they were hoping for? Probably, right? They probably, because remember what they said. They said, hey, if you throw us in the furnace, our God will save us. They're probably hoping at that point that Nebuchadnezzar will go, huh, well, I don't want to look foolish. I guess, all right, say you're sorry. No, you're not going to say you're sorry. Well, don't do it again. And that would be the end of it. Um, we got that, remember, we, we see that picture when, when uh, Paul and, uh, not Paul, I'm sorry, where, where uh, Peter and John and James are drugged before the Sanhedrin. Don't talk about Jesus anymore. Well, we have to talk about Jesus. Well, you better not. And then they let him go, right? This is that same kind of thing. I'm sure they're thinking, hey, you know what? Fine, we won't throw you in there. I, they fully expect God to save them. They probably expect God to save them by having them not thrown in the furnace. But you know what? I have a feeling they're still not scared. It's like a roller coaster. Do me a favor. Raise your hand if you love a roller coaster. Really? That's it? Raise your hand if you hate a roller coaster. Man, I'm disappointed in you guys. I love a roller coaster. You know why I love a roller coaster? Because I trust the architect that designed it, the engineer that designed it. I trust the people that built it. You're shaking your head. You don't trust them. I do. I even trust the 14-year-old kid they put in charge of the start-stop button. <laughs> right? I'm all good there. I'm good on a roller coaster. And does it feel scary and out of control? Absolutely it does. But I trust the operator. Now, if I got in the car with Riley, she sometimes drives like we're on a roller coaster. I'm not such a big fan of that. Because that's out of control. The roller coaster feels out of control, but it's never out of control. 
it speeds up, it slows down, it corkscrews, it goes upside down, it does all of those things exactly when it's supposed to, at exactly the right time, exactly the way it was designed to do, because the operator has designed it to be that way. The engineer has designed it to be that way. If I'm in a car and that happens, I'm a little bit terrified. But that's kind of the way the Christian life works. When you trust the one at the controls, like Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego here, it's kind of like a roller coaster. You do your part, you get on the ride, right? They say, hey, make sure you're buckled up properly, buckle up properly, right? Make sure you're rooted in faith, be rooted in faith. They say, make sure you put the harness on, put the harness on, right? Keep your hands inside the ride, fine. I'm not going to be dumb. I don't want them to hit the tunnel. I put my hands inside the ride. When you do what the operator has called you to do, you can have confidence that you will return safe. When you do what God calls you to do, then when it's time, you can throw your hands up in the air and you can scream with joy and excitement because guess what? It's going to work the way that God has designed it to work. And it will feel out of control and it will feel upside down and it will feel sideways, but you know what? Never, ever has God stopped being in control. You are immortal when you are in the will of God until he is ready to call you home. And then guess what? You will live immortally with him forever then. Like you can't lose when this is the scenario. It feels out of control, but you can't lose. And Shadrach gets it. Meshach gets it. Abednego gets it. And it's a roller coaster. And they're like, hey, I don't know how God's going to save us, but I know God will. And Nebuchadnezzar has them hogtied, and he has them thrown in the furnace. And the next thing you know, they're standing up, walking around with an extra buddy. And it makes zero sense to everybody else watching, but it makes perfect sense to them. Because they're on a roller coaster, and they know it. They're like, I wonder what surprise is coming next. Man, you live a life of wimpy faith, then you were on the kiddie ride, and forgive me, the kiddie ride sucks. It does, right? It goes like this. Sometimes it gets up to 10 miles an hour. It's boring. When you're living that life, that's where you try to substitute with sex. When you're living that life, the kiddie ride life, Christian, and your life is boring and it doesn't make sense and it doesn't work, that's when you try to substitute with drugs and alcohol. When you're living kiddie ride life, that, that's where you, you step out into places where you shouldn't be because you're trying to fill this thing. You're trying to make this life exciting when this life hasn't been exciting. And somebody told you that the Christian life was supposed to be exciting and this isn't exciting, so I gotta figure it out. No, the problem is you're living life with kiddie ride kind of faith. Stealth faith. You need to live life with this kind of faith, this roller coaster to die for ridiculous faith. Nebuchadnezzar shouted, I see four men unbound walking around in the fire, unharmed, and the fourth looks like a god. Then Nebuchadnezzar uh, came as close as he could to the door of the flaming furnace, and he shouted, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, servants of the Most High God, Come out. I love it here. He's not saying servants of your God. He's using the appropriate term for God here. Okay? Now, he's, he's still not there yet, but he's getting there, right? But he's using the correct term. He's not saying servants of your God. He's saying servants of the most high God. Come out. Come here. So Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego stepped out of the fire. 
Then the high officers, officials, governors, and advisors crowded around them and saw that the fire had not touched them. Not a hair on their head was singed. Their clothing was not scorched. They didn't even smell of smoke. Because God had done a thing. And so here's just this quick truth I want to share with you as we get ready to close. God delivers. And when you've got faith that's to die for, God delivers. He delivers with freedom. You notice um, that in the midst of the trial, they were free. When they were questioned, they were free. When they were bound, they were free. And when they were thrown into the fiery furnace, they were free. Symbolically and literally, right? They were free. They were free to risk everything because God is with them. And then literally they were free because their, their ropes were burned away and they were walking around unharmed. They were undoubtedly worshiping in the trial. They were praising God in the trial. The crushing heat of the trial was bearing down on them and they were free to worship. I'm not saying, guys, that, that you're not gonna suffer with ridiculous faith that's to die for. But what I am saying is that even in the midst of that suffering, because God is who he says he is, you are free to worship and praise him. Just like these guys. Um, God delivered with his presence, literally. Literally. Um, now, I'm not, this is one of the questions I have for God when I get to heaven. Uh, it's one of the things I'm going to ask Jesus. I got a long list of things to ask Jesus. This is on the list. Was that you? Was that you? I think it was. I think what we're reading there is a pre-incarnate Christ. Um, that is Christ before. I mean, we know he's always existed. We know he's always active. Uh, we know that there's a point in time where he steps into human history, but what's he doing before that? He's certainly active. I think we see him several times in the Old Testament. I think we see him several times, and I think this is one of them. If I'm wrong, that's okay. Certainly, it, it could be an angel. Um, it could be something, but, but this is God's presence in one way or another that is with them. When you are in a trial, listen, God will deliver with his presence. Now, I don't know that physically he's going to come and walk around with you. Although if that happens, call me <laughs> because I'd like to come and hang out with y'all. But God's presence always delivers. That's why we tell you, read, pray, study, be in tune with the God of the universe. Holy Spirit, you're welcome here. Holy Spirit, we want you here. We want all of this. Because God delivers with his presence and God delivers with his power. Only God can do these things. Only God can do these things. And, and here's the deal. God delivers with, and that should also say for, his glory. Because look at how this ends. Nebuchadnezzar said, uh, Praise be to the God of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. He sent his angel to rescue his servants who trusted in him. They defied the king's command. They were willing to die rather than serve or worship any god except for their own god. That's just history. That's what happened. Here's what he says. Oh, man, that's the one. Therefore, I make this decree. If any people, whatever their race or nation or language, speak a word against the God of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, they will be torn limb from limb, and their houses will be turned into heaps of rubble. There is no other God who can rescue like this. God rescues, and it brings him glory. And he used Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego to prove that he was real, and to prove that he was powerful. By the way, we will not read another story about 
Daniel, Shadrach, Meshach, or Abednego being tested by Nebuchadnezzar because of their faith in the God of the universe. Because from now on, when they say, hey, I'm following the God of the universe, you know what Nebuchadnezzar is going to say? Oh, thank goodness. Because I don't want you to do anything else. And God used them to show himself as real. So here's my question for you. Ask the praise team to come up. Ask the ushers to come forward. Here's my question for you. What is your life teaching people about God? Are you more worried about holding on to your own life or are you willing to risk it so that people can see that God is real because of the way he shows up in your life? Are you a secret Christian? Are you a stealth Christian? Or are you living a life of ridiculous faith? If you've got things that are holding you back from living a life of ridiculous faith, then as we go to prayer, um, I would encourage you um, to give them up. Uh, We're going to pray, and and as we pray, we're going to pray for this morning's offering. Uh, We're going to thank God for who he is and what he's done. Uh, If you're visiting with us today, I want to remind you or encourage you that that you do not need to feel obligated to participate in the offering. Uh, This is something that those of us that call Blessed Hope home, we do to fund the ministries of the church. And the ministries of the church are all about leading in this community with ridiculous faith. So would you um, pray with me? Heavenly Father, God, we just love you and thank you for who you are. We thank you that you are a God who is faithful and just and true. We thank you that you are faithful to your promises. We thank you that you are in charge of all things. We thank you that when we have the right attitude that we can enjoy this life, ups, downs, trials, hardships, we can enjoy them knowing that we are victorious because you are victorious. And we can, we can go through this life with just such ridiculous joy. And God, we can do that because you are who you say you are, that you are a God who rescues with your presence and you rescue and you bring freedom and you rescue with your power and it always brings glory to you. And God, we ask that you use us to bring yourself glory. Help us to live a life of ridiculous faith. And Father, as we collect offering this morning, I pray that you will take it, that you'll multiply it, that you'll use it. I don't just pray for ours, but for the offering at every Bible-believing, gospel-preaching church, that you would take it and multiply it, and that you would help us to pool our resources to make headway into this community, to bring the gospel of Jesus Christ where it needs to be, to bring light where there's darkness, hope where there's hopelessness, that you would help us to bring life where there's death. Father, I pray that as we go from here that you would help us all examine ourselves. Are we living a life of ridiculous faith or a life of me-first stealth faith? I pray that you'll help us examine that and you will help us give to you anything that gets in the way. Father, we love you and we praise you and we thank you for all things. We thank you for who you are. We thank you for what you've done and we thank you for the life of adventure that you call us to. We love you and we praise you. Amen.